Palm Sunday is an exciting Sunday. In many ways, it, it feels like a warm-up to Easter. You can feel the anticipation and the excitement building. When I went into ministry, though, I became aware of how much more complicated this day is. Back in my early days of ministry, when we wear a robe and have all the vestments, some of that conflict could be made apparent by um, the colors of the stoles we would wear. You may remember some of you go back a little way to the, the robes and the different colors, the vestments, and colors represented the different seasons of the church. And on Palm Sunday, you would start out wearing purple for Lent. And then by the close of the service, if you were good and you could do it quickly, you would have switched over to red for Palm Sunday, but more importantly for the Passion Week that begins. Passion not being like we think about it, deep love, but passion being that of suffering. It was a way of showing that there's a transition that happens in this service. A transition as Jesus is coming in in celebration, and yet the question looms, what is he coming in to? This was an event that was so marked on each of the gospel writers that they each recorded this event. In many ways, some sounding similar to one another, but slightly different, each of them taking in another perspective, much as if four of us were at an event that was momentous. We would share the, the significant things that we all saw, and we would resonate together, and you, you could see that we all saw and were part of the same thing. And yet, you'd pick up from each of us a slightly different nuance. Something that, it's not that the others wouldn't agree with, they just focused elsewhere. If you talk to my wife and I about an event that we see, you'll hear two different stories, but yet you'll hear the same story. And chances are, you'd seek out both of us just to get a little bit more perspective on what happened. Today, we read about Palm Sunday from the gospel writer Matthew. I'm going to dive into what was happening that day and the haunting question that was before everyone. So let's pray. Lord, may you bless us this morning. We've come to worship you. We've come to glorify you. But we've also come to hear from you. We've come ready to be changed, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to marvel and to be humbled. Make our hearts so ready. 
And may your spirit open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew records it in the 21st chapter this way. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Maybe you caught that last part. When he actually entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Stirred up. That's Matthew's way of putting it. It's a word, stirred, that the translators are translating in this case as stirred, but it's a word that's used only five times in the New Testament. Three of those times are by Matthew. Seems to be a favorite word of his. Do you have any words that you tend to use over and over? I kind of get stuck in patterns. Some days I find myself, my goodness, that's the third time I've used that word today. Kind of get it stuck in my head. But you know, this word has some powerful meaning. It's the word that Matthew used to describe the guards at the tomb of Jesus when the angels appeared, that they were so awestruck that they literally seized, same word, with fear, as if they were stones. They were so stirred, they were so seized. The other place Matthew uses it, besides the one we just read and the one I just told you. The other place is the moment that Jesus dies. 
Matthew describes the temple curtain being torn in two and says that there was an earthquake that shook the whole area. That word shook is the same word as the word stirred and seized. And it is the base word that we use for our word today of seismic, which we, of course, use for earthquakes. So when Matthew says the whole city was stirred up, he's talking about a seismic event. He's talking about that kind of thing, that kind of story, that kind of event that grabs everyone's attention, that no one can avoid it. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone is turning it this way and that. And the reason they're doing it, Matthew tells us, is they're asking one single question. They may be asking it in a lot of different ways, but they've got one question that's on the heart of everyone, and that is simply this. Who is this? Who is this? Now, don't, don't get confused by that and make it too simple. It's not that they can't say, well, this is Jesus from Nazareth or, or identify him. They're trying to identify him as to who is he and how does he relate to me? What difference does he truly make? Each of us here is identified by many different factors. We can walk into somewhere and someone can say, oh, this is my dad, or this is my mom, or this is my aunt, or this is my uncle, or this is my teacher, or this is my coworker, or this is my friend. All the different ways we can be related to someone. Each of those ways defining how we have a part in that person's life and how there's a responsibility to that part. We make note of the places where someone may have an actual relationship name, but they don't fulfill that part. Someone who doesn't fulfill being a father or a parent or a grandparent, or even though that, that's their relationship, they don't fulfill it. We make note of that. The people are trying to understand. And Matthew is putting the question to anyone who's been reading or listening through the gospel to answer the question, who is this? What relationship does he have to me? So let's go back through the facts as Matthew gives them. We'll begin with the event and background of what's happening. They're coming up on the Passover. The Passover is one of three different festivals in which any Jew was encouraged to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast or festival. 
this could last days. If you were far away and had to make this trip three times a year, it could be extremely disruptive to daily life. And yet the expectation was that you would go. Now, scholars debate about how much and how many made it and made it, but there's certainly an understanding that families would make this pilgrimage to one or more of these festivals. They might even vary it over the years, but they would make this trip to Jerusalem. And at the very least, even if scholars cannot settle on how many and who went, what is certain is that Jerusalem swelled every time these festivals happened. Much like we see Holland swell during tulip time. How many of you like to drive up there during tulip time? Right, exactly. Every other day of the year, we explain to people, Hamilton is near Holland, right? That's the way we describe where Hamilton is. But around tulip time, we say, oh, that's Holland. Because it just swells to like a quarter million people. It's crazy. Jerusalem was that much more. It would just swell. And the people had all sorts of rhythms they would go through. I just shared with you at the start of worship the psalms. They would recite these psalms. They were part of their, their life and breath of going to these festivals. But they did this all the while being occupied or under the thumb of Rome. They had for generations been occupied by one or more oppressor through many of the recent hundred years of their history. Which means they could never live fully as their own and always desired to have those oppressive agencies lifted off. Oh, the Romans gave them certain outs that they didn't give anywhere else in the culture. The Jews were allowed to do things that no other people were allowed to do because the Romans found that if they couldn't, if they enforced their rules on the Jews, the Jews would choose to die instead. So they made accommodations, but just the same, they were tired of the oppression. And they lived for the day that it would change. And you know what? Rather than thinking that, oh, that only happened back in the time when, when God delivered the people out of Egypt and out of Pharaoh's bondage, that was long ago, they have in their recent history, recent being roughly 160 to 200 years of the time, they have in their history a time where they threw off their oppressor. The Maccabean Revolt. And that was still strong in their conscience. Much like events like the Declaration of Independence still drives this country in many ways. Oh, there's debate about how much or how little people giving up on it or people staying with it. But still, it, it's there, it's part of the DNA. And they had this sense of we've done it before, we've thrown off the oppressor before, we're just waiting. Waiting on God. And waiting on the promises of God. 
For God had shared through the prophets that one day there would be one on the throne of David that would come from the line of David who would be the eternal setting up of the kingdom that it wouldn't be thrown off anymore. So they're waiting for that one. That's the background. That's part of the stirring up of who is this because Matthew records this, John records this, when they recognize that Jesus steps into the history of this and says, go get me a colt. Each of the gospel writers records it a little differently. Some are a little less in information, some are a little more, but the truth is Matthew and John record and identify this with the prophet Zechariah. Matthew, Matthew actually says, this was done or this fulfilled the pro- what the prophet said in Zechariah. He doesn't say Zechariah 9.9, but that's where it's from, Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And Jesus calls for it. And so the anticipation is building. Could this be our king? Could this be the one? It's not as though Jesus would be unaware of this expectation. He would have been fully aware of what he's doing. Not just because he's Jesus, but because he was a good Jew. He would know fully this expectation of what he's doing. And they are expecting a king. And the king they're expecting is a king that will overthrow, to help throw off all this, much like Judas Maccabeus way back in the Maccabean revolt. This is the time. Is it actually happening this moment? Now, and to understand that question, you have to think like we think today. If I were to give you a quiz about do you believe that Jesus is going to return and come again, all of you would check the box saying yes. If I gave you the quiz and said, how likely do you think it would be in your lifetime? Highly likely, somewhat likely, unsure, somewhat, uh, what did I start with? Highly likely, somewhat likely. Somewhat unlikely or highly unlikely. Chances are, if we didn't have to put our name on it, most of us would fill in highly unlikely or unsure. Unsure just to hedge our bets. Because our sentiment is that we're just, we've lived 2,000 years. It's, it hasn't happened yet. We know it's going to happen. But the idea that it's going to happen in our life, well, you know. Well, now we have something of what they were feeling. It's been a long time. We believe the king is going to come, but is he going to come? And suddenly Jesus is doing this, and the anticipation, the excitement, the disciples have been with him. Is this it? Is it really? I can't believe, is this happening today? Is this really about to happen? Who is this? The palms. 
We're told to cut branches off and lay them on the ground. I'll talk more about that in a moment. In another one, it talks about them waving palms. This is a symbol of Jewish nationalism. This is a symbol of that Maccabean revolt. They weren't just waving and saying, yay, our country. They were revolting in many ways. And yet Rome was allowing it because they come in in this festival every year. We're going to keep close tabs on it. They keep close tabs on the city swelling. But at the same time, they've got to allow them a little bit. This is a tense moment. It's why in one of the other gospels, the, the leader, religious leaders say, you know, to Jesus, hey, you've got to quiet it down. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says to them, I tell you, if I tell them to be quiet, even the stones will shout out, who is this? The next image I have to ask you to go more into the eyes of a child. Take a trip back with me trip back to my own childhood in a small country church, Palm Sunday like today, at an age where when my parents would sit me in the pew, they were thoughtful and would try to sit me in such a way that I could still see up front, that I could see around the person in front of me. You know, those, you know some of you are just too big to see around, right? You're just too tall. Don't hear big as too big, but big as in too tall. They were conscious, it was pews, they would sit me in such a way that I could still see up front. But the view today, oh, Pastor Bob was describing Palm Sunday. And he was describing how they took their cloaks off and laid them on the donkey. And then laid them on the path for which Jesus on the donkey would ride. And he asked all the gentlemen in the church to remove their jackets and pass them down the pew. And those on the end of the pew to lay them out in the aisle. Now, this was the mid to late 70s, so you can imagine all the color I got to see. As I saw all these gentlemen's coats laying in the aisle, the kid, we were all standing now on the pews looking and, and just gazing at this amazement that all this Sunday best was just strewn down the aisle. He wanted us all to see what was happening. Those were the eyes of a child, amazed at the sacrifice, wondering how people would know how to get their coats back, but it was more than that, folks. Back in their history, you'll read this later if you want to in 2 Kings 9. God determined that the northern kingdom, the house and lineage of Omri or Ahab, was to be overthrown. King Ahab was an awful king. His wife was 
Jezebel, whom we still lay out as a name of awfulness. Ahab is the name that Herman Melville used for that character in Moby Dick. And God determined that he would raise up a new king in the northern kingdom to wipe out the whole line of Ahab, which had even bleeded into the southern kingdom and was part of the southern kingdom's king as well. And so Elisha the prophet sent one of the young prophets off to where all the generals of the northern kingdom were as they were in battle. And there they were in a war council. And this young prophet was sent on to go and anoint one of those generals, General Jehu, the lead general, to anoint him the new king of Israel. This is a coup. That young prophet takes, gets to the council, disrupts the war council of all these generals, takes them and asks them to meet in with a small room. They go into a separate room, and he takes and he breaks a flask of oil, pours it over Jehu's head, and says, the Lord has anointed you king of Israel to overthrow the house of Ahab. And the directions from Elisha to that young prophet was, once you do that, Get out of there as fast as you can. And that young prophet runs out the door. General Jehu comes back to the war council and all the generals say, so what did that guy want to talk to you about? What was that all about? And he says, oh, you know how those prophets are. They're just all, just a babbler. Don't worry about it. And they said, no, seriously, what did he say? He said, well, he said, God's anointed me king of Israel, and then I'm to overthrow the house of Ahab. That's in a despot situation. That's like Nazi Germany. That's, that's a horrific situation. That's, that's being in a dictatorship and suddenly saying, I've been told to lead a coup. I mean, he's risking it by telling the other generals. They could have taken his life right there and then. Instead, what do they do? They immediately take off their cloaks and they lay it down on the ground before him, on the stairs before him, and say, we are with you. And Jehu immediately says, then tell no one and let's go. And therein begins the slaughter of the house of Ahab, which includes both the king of Israel, Ahab's son, Jotham, or Jehu, as he's known. It's not Jehu. Um, anyway, and then also the king of Judah. That is marked in their psyche so that when Jesus gets on this colt that's full of a donkey and begins that path into Jerusalem, like all the festival pilgrims do as they go into Jerusalem, they're just so moved. They take off their coats to say, we are with you. This is the time. They cut the branches and they start waving. This is the revolt. This is powerful. The expectation, I cannot give you enough of the measure of what their expectation was. And they get into the city, Jesus gets into the city, and the whole city is stirred. 
Now does seismic make sense to you? This place is rocking with uncertainty and seeking clarity. Who is this? Because the other side of it is, he didn't come in on a white horse. He came in on a colt. And if we don't catch the image of that, the, the full of a donkey, if we don't catch that, the prophet even says, humble. Truth is, it's probably only one person that day who really knew what was going on, and that was Jesus. The expectations were high. The hopes were high. They wanted to be delivered, understandably, from all that they were in. But the stakes were much higher for Jesus. He was coming to deliver them and us from the evil and sinfulness that we have been locked in forever. He was coming from a much larger purpose. And yes, he was coming in as a conquering king. But he was going to conquer far more than Rome. He was going to conquer sin and death. And then the hearts of ourselves get much heavier when we realize how much higher the stakes were. That he was going to do a battle that no one could do. He was going to give himself for us. This week is Holy Week. The journey to the cross is not something to be skipped. We look forward in celebration to Easter, the resurrection. In fact, every Sunday is a mini Easter, a celebration that Jesus Christ is risen. But this week is about remembering that journey that Jesus took when he went to Jerusalem. The whole place was stirred up. One can only imagine how much more his heart was stirred for us. Who is he to you? Does he change your life? Will he change your life? It's a question that the gospel writer puts to us. Who is this? Let's pray. Almighty God, we can only imagine. It is absolutely amazing. The gift that you've given in your son, Jesus. That he would be obedient when we were disobedient. That he'd be humble in riding to the cross when we're so full of pride. Help us, O Lord, finally to see who is this. And may our lives from this point forward reflect what we see. In Jesus' name, amen. The cornerstone the builders rejected has become...
the cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. Praise be to God. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.